Is this thing on? Cool. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Uncultured, the podcast. I'm your host, Kripa, here to add a little bit of colour to your weeks. Today's episode is a little different. We have Kushal Vyas, lawyer, squash player, and all-round champion. He's going to be talking about the flight bans and whether or not he feels that they're just in face of the global pandemic. Here's Kushal. Eighteen months ago, the world was a completely different place and we didn't even know what the words COVID-19 meant. However, as we speak, the world's largest democracy in India is bearing the brunt of a tragic second wave of the virus. With a crumbling healthcare system, 1.3 billion residents and a culture that is largely people and community centric, the virus is uncontainable, with 3,800 deaths on average per day. Last week, the Australian government announced that criminal sanctions will be imposed on any Australian citizen trying to return home from India, the first ban of this kind that Australia has imposed through any global outbreak. This has left South Asian Australians distraught and abandoned, feeling like they've been treated differently and unfairly, worrying about the 9,000 Australian citizens stuck back in India. While some see the ban as valid and necessary, Kushal Vyas talks to the injustice and government failure he sees in the ban, having had to deal with the logistical nightmare of bringing his mum home after eight months stuck in India. Today, we have a very special guest, and we are talking about something very important. We have Kushal. Hi. Hey, how's it going, Kripa? Good, thank you. Thanks for being here. It is literally 9pm on a weekday, and so I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to be here. Not at all. 9pm on a weekday because I want to be here. It's so exciting to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. How did we meet? When did we meet? (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, well, I mean, I was really lucky enough to get a message from you just a couple of days ago after the pedestrian article went live, and obviously, thanks so much for taking the time to read it. Of course. Uh, Thank you so much. And yeah, it's just been nice. We've been able to get chatting about the wonderful work that you're doing with the podcast as well and just couldn't wait to be part of it. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I'm a baby lawyer. Uh, I like to play squash from time to time. Although, I mean, it's fun, but the problem is I haven't gone for a while and lockdown, I think, has encouraged some... You play with us. We play sometimes. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. Simran, we play squash sometimes. More than happy to. You said you're a baby lawyer. Yeah, yeah. uh, What kind of law... So I'm in commercial law at the moment mm. uh, and just specialising in disputes. Yeah, otherwise it's just, it's obviously been a very strange couple of years for, for most people. Binging on a lot of Bollywood, uh, unfortunately, means that the choreography front for different weddings and that sort of thing is a little <laughs> less, but, um, you know, hopefully that, that comes back very soon now that things are, fingers crossed, touch wood. Yeah. I read your article a couple of days ago. Tell me a bit about the article. You just kind of casually were like, just casually the, you know, pedestrian article that I wrote. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> it, look, very fortunate. And obviously I think like a lot of Australian Indians and Indians in general that, that are in Australia and around the world that have been following the news, a lot of people were taken aback, quite shaken, quite outraged during that weekend, given the personal circumstance of having just got my mum back in December it was something that hit very, very close to home. Uh, And over the weekend, it was sort of just, you know, when you are feeling quite helpless, you're feeling like, you know, what else is there that I can do, uh, that you just start channeling your thoughts. And for me, a lot of of the time, that's for writing. Pen some thoughts down and then just sort of sent it around to a couple of different publications and pedestrians said, hey, you know, we'd really want to run this and was really fortunate that they've, they've been super supportive about it and 
raising obviously some some really important topics that's important to Australian Indians, but I think Australians in general as well. Yeah, no, for sure. And I can definitely empathize and relate to needing to channel your feelings and energy and using writing as a form of catharsis. So it's amazing that instead of your journal, which is what I do. <laughs> you got it published in an nah, the, 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 the No, the only reason that I don't have a journal is because the handwriting's so bad that no, I wouldn't be able to read it myself. So that's why it's always typed and publishes. As, Fair uh, enough. So that, that's the main reason. It worked for you. So in that article you did mention, you had fears about your mum being stuck in India. Can you talk to me about that, why she was in India and what your emotions were around that? I'd have to say that for, for me and most of my family, last year was was a very challenging one. Every day is a sort of developing situation. You're constantly worried and you're constantly helpless in the sense that you're in a different country. It's not possible for you to go there. It's not possible for you to do anything. And, you know, every birthday, every wedding, every dinner, every gathering, you know, you're obviously seeing that, you know, a particular mm. someone is missing. So who do you who do you have in India and whereabouts? Yeah, so all of my mum's side is in India mm -hmm. uh, and all of dad's side's over here. Thankfully, yeah. you know, again, touch wood, all of them are, are going okay. I'm glad to hear uh, that. Yeah, no, really, really, really grateful. My mum, while she was in India, was in a town called uh, Bhavnagar in Gujarat. My aunt and my grandmother are now on the outskirts of Pune. Uh, and they are luckily quite distanced in terms of there's a, their place is sort of more in a hill station kind of area. Well, it's easier to socially distance in, in, in that environment as opposed to, you know, apartment blocks and that sort of thing where it's obviously very difficult to contain a lot of those outbreaks. One of the biggest fears, and, and, and it is a fear that obviously is even more heightened given the circumstances now that are, there's in India, that India is a country of over a billion people. If you're talking about a pandemic, you're talking about a health system that right from the outset is always going to be one that is very, very vulnerable to being overwhelmed, particularly if there's any outbreaks. Now, we had several times and bumps where, you know, it was particularly scary sometimes because you had neighbours that were uh, passing away from COVID. You had a whole bunch of different family members. You had people that we knew. For my mum, who's obviously in a vulnerable category, also staying with my grandmother at the time, who is obviously a very vulnerable category as well, it became very scary that if any of them were to contract it, the biggest fear being that will they need to be hospitalised mm. because of the way that the hospital system was already quite overwhelmed at that time. You already had stories of people who were unable to get beds. Mm. At that point, it's sort of out of your hands. If you've got a system that's overwhelmed, it's not really in your control anymore. I can relate to that feeling of helplessness. I've got my entire mum's side in India as well, yeah. but they're in the heart of the city. In India, their lifestyles are built so much around interacting with people, whether yeah, that's community, exactly whether it's having someone help around the house, whether it's your vegetables and milk and everything delivered, or just saying hello to your neighbors as you walk exactly. up and down your apartment blocks. Locking down now and last year would have just been such a shock to their lifestyles, not in the same way that it was for us. No, absolutely. It's, I mean, the way that we, you know, in, in India live our lives is, you know, with large families, large networks, large communities. And it's exactly like you say, that everything is people oriented. So it would, it would be very difficult. You don't know what the next day is going to bring. You don't know if there's going to be an infection. So why was your mum there again? So she was just visiting uh, my grandmother. So she's uh, in her 90s now. My grandmother lives on her own as well. So, you know, when COVID struck, it's sort of, in a way, a blessing in that my mum was able to look after her during that time. Not not to say that she necessarily required looking after her. My grandmother's a very <laughs> fiercely independent woman, still still sees patients and that sort of thing at her age. And oh, wow. she's an incredible, incredible source of inspiration. But 
obviously, you know, we worry for her, we worry for the family. And it was in that sense, fortunate that mum was able to be with her, but we just never anticipated that it would mean that we'd be waiting months upon months to be able to find a way home. And how long was she stuck there? Mum went on March 3rd. She returned on 3rd December. We probably started looking to get her home by around April uh, and it was just constant, I guess, dead ends. Uh, You know, you'd be spending your time at work trying to, like, sometimes be calling on the side at your lunch breaks, looking up flights, looking up the international situation, trying to figure out what the most creative route possible is home. After that, always having constant family conferences to figure out, is this too risky an option? Does this mean she might actually get stranded in another country because she's unable to get a connecting flight? You're looking up, and this is, again, I come from a legal background and I was struggling with that. Mm. You think about what the vast majority of people are going through, the way that you actually navigate your way home and figure out how you move from country to country if if the government's asking you to take whatever commercial options are available... It's really difficult because you're looking at the restrictions, the regulations of Singapore, of Sri Lanka, of the US. And for most people, that's that's a really, really difficult step to take, particularly with very limited consular support. I can't imagine the added stress that would have put on to your daily life last year. We're dealing with our own outbreaks here in Australia and dealing with our own isolation. On top of that, you're constantly thinking about your mum and how to get her home. So my heart really does go out to you and anyone else who's experienced or experiencing a similar situation. It was tough then and that's why I think what really struck me and what really drove me to to write or just why it affected me quite a bit hearing the news over the weekend is that it was difficult for us then and that was before this second wave and the way that things are now. It was bad then it's awful now. And to think, I'm just trying to think about what it would have been like if mum was still stuck there. And to know that there are families, many of them, you know, the families of 9,000 that are stuck there now, that are going through what we went through, but in an even worse circumstance. Mm. And it very easily could have been your mum. So Exactly. And if there's anyone listening that is in that situation, obviously, It's empty words in terms of our thoughts are with you, but my God, I understand how difficult that is. For the benefit of anyone at home, India recorded 3,780 deaths on Wednesday. So the country has recorded over 20 million cases, and it's believed to be even higher than that, the real number, because of cases that have not been reported and the death toll that hasn't been reported. The surge of infections over the last couple months has also coincided with a dramatic drop in supply of vaccinations, hospitals being overflowed, oxygen shortages everywhere, and mass cremations. It's just an absolute dystopic environment at the moment. The situation that we're talking about today is that the government in Australia has said that 9,000 Australian people registered in India, with 650 of those being vulnerable. They, I think that figure has now been estimated to be even higher at 900. Really? 900 out of the 9,000? Okay, Indeed. well, the ban is threatening to find them up to $66,000, as well as five years in jail. Exactly. And I think that's what's been the most confronting about this whole situation, that We've had travel bans and travel restrictions since the outset of the pandemic. That part of it is not surprising. It's not shocking. Largely, it's not controversial. The bigger issue at play is the fact that I can't, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that there is any other country in the world that has actively told its own citizens that there is no way we will allow you to come home. Now, talking in the context of not only there being now 9,000 
Australians stuck and stranded in India, we've effectively condemned them to a situation, at least for the next two weeks, where there is no way that they can return to the safety of Australia in a situation where there's very few basic medical supplies, the whole hospital system is overwhelmed, and there are people who are not necessarily always dying of COVID, but the fact that they cannot get the basic supplies that would otherwise save their life. Our government slammed the door in the face of our own citizens to say that you cannot come home in those circumstances. And that, I think, has been the most confronting and the most terrifying decision that I believe this government has made. An important distinction to make there is we know that Australians have been stranded, but it hasn't been criminalised until this point. Scott Morrison is going to reevaluate the ban on the 15th of May, but until then, all of these people are stuck. Criminal sanctions for your own citizens to come home is an incredible, and I don't mean incredible in a good way, is just a one that I still cannot believe has been considered to say to your own citizens that we can have the power to throw you in jail merely for the act of returning home. Mm. And I encourage anyone with an Australian passport to look at some of the first pages in that passport about what it says, because that is one of your your right to be able to come home. So a question I had when I first kind of saw the figures of how many people are stuck in India is why are these people stuck? What were they doing in India at the first place? One of the big reasons that there are a lot of Australians still stuck, in in my view from our experience while mum was away, is twofold. And I think there's a lot of Australians and uh, people in general that don't quite understand why there are still such high numbers stuck Uh, in places like India. One is that in India, there's a commercial ban or large commercial restrictions on commercial flights actually leaving the country. So you have a couple of routes, some of them which go through the Middle East, uh, some that go through the US, but all of those flights need to get special government permission to be able to actually run in the first place. So it means that the type of commercial operations that you usually have in places like India are few and far between. So the commercial options are very, very limited for starters. You couple that now with Australia's cap on international arrivals, and that's not just international arrivals in India, that's international arrivals total. So it means that when you combine those two policies, the ability to actually get on a commercial flight in the first place to get back to Australia is an extremely, extremely difficult task and almost impossible in the sense that we had stories of people that were sort of trying to find a way to get to the U.S., who were able to get a U.S. green card to then figure out a way to fly from the U.S. back to Australia. Jeez. And it's insane. On top of that, people who can only afford economy class seats are getting bumped from flights. That's a big issue, and it's very difficult when you're telling people, we warned you to come back, we're telling you to come back, when you can make all those statements, but if there is no avenue to actually return in the first place, and your, your policy is to say, get on a commercial flight home, is a bit of a fallacy in the sense that if you have no option in the first place, you can't follow that advice. We've had over a year, we've had and been lucky enough, and you know, and congratulations to governments for being able to manage this, this crisis in, in COVID and to be able to look after the amount of you know, cases that we're having. But in that context, having a year, having so long and having the resources of a Western country, we haven't prioritised trying to get our citizens home. And that's what's been so shocking. So I guess what's important to consider here is that there was a reason that this ban was imposed. Foreign Minister Maurice Payne said that the decision was made under the Biosecurity Act on the basis of advice from the Chief Medical Officer. 
what it's based on is that 15% of the Howard Springs quarantine facility that we have here has COVID. Now, medical experts have advised that the quarantine facility can only sustain 2% of positive COVID cases inside throughout the pandemic. That's the benchmark, right? So the decision was made to place this ban because they want to give quarantine facilities a breather. One of the questions that Australians do really need to scrutinise is why are our quarantine facilities not good enough to be able to get our citizens back after over a year of this pandemic going on? We have not in any meaningful way increased quarantine capacity. We've still got citizens that are stranded while we're passing the buck on who to blame. Because we did not take quarantining seriously enough to be able to prioritise our citizens from being able to come back. We're in a situation now where there are arguments to say that we don't have the facilities, we need time. And you would think that after a year of managing the outbreaks, that risks are going to crop up at any point and that it's not a sustainable long-term thing to shut down or ease back the quarantine facilities. Precisely, because, look, the situation in India and overwhelmed health systems is not a new issue. The government knew this. Everyone knew it. I think one of the most difficult things, governments did know quite a bit about this virus, given that it's been over a year. These outbreaks, the one in India or all over the world, they're not new. We've had outbreaks in the UK. We've had them in the US. We've had them all over the place. And we've had very high averages of COVID positive cases as well from time to time and new strains that we didn't know too much about. And even in those circumstances, we never closed the border full stop to deny citizens from returning home. Yes, we had restrictions. Yes, I would still criticise how slow we were in trying to get our citizens back. But at least in some shape or form, the border in some way was open to our citizens to try and get home. Why that is different in the case where India is having a spike, where we are now genuinely seeing people who could be very much at risk from dying of not having the most basic medical supplies. We can talk about the medical advice. We can talk about all of that, but it is inconsistent with how we've dealt with the issue in the past. And I think that's what's affronted so many people of Indian heritage to say that how come if it was okay when the spikes were happening, when the second and third waves were happening in the UK and the US... Why is it now an issue that we have to full stop close the border when it is a non-Western nation? Exactly. And I think that seems to be the rhetoric the rhetoric that is really going around at the moment. Now, uh, India's caseload stands at 20 million, but we have to consider that in proportion to its 1.3 billion population. So the rate of the infections per capita is about 1.3% of the total population, and it's lower than that of the US at its worst, at almost 10%. Now, there's really only one reason I can think of which creates that double standard, and I think it's pretty clear what that is. I think the stats, just like you say, speak for themselves, and people are always a bit afraid to talk about racism or Mm -hmm. to label that something is racist or discriminatory. I'm not here suggesting that there is the government is sitting there rubbing their hands together being like, yes, we've stopped the Indians. We're super glad about that. I'm not suggesting that at all. But when you have inconsistency of that level and when you have the comfort to be able to say that we will not only ban citizens and permanent residents returning from this one part of the world, not only ban them from coming, but threaten criminal sanctions against those very citizens – 
And the speed and comfort that that was done with is what is troubling. Sure, you may not intend something to be so hurtful or so outrageous or racist in that sense. But the effect of that absolutely is. And you have to ask yourself, how are we so comfortable to be able to have those double standards for a country that is non-Western? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good point in saying that racism doesn't just have to be someone out in a playground calling someone a name. Systemic racism is some of the most prevalent and damaging forms of racism. We can argue that proportionately it's lower than US at its worst, but it's still a large number of people. I think you counted that very well by saying that we should be able to manage that large number of people. It is 900 vulnerable people who we should be prioritizing. God forbid anything happens to any of those 900 or 9,000 Australians, that is on our hands. And in terms of the point about our quarantine not being able to handle those facilities, we also have to ask ourselves a question as a nation to say, what does citizenship actually mean? Regardless of whatever your heritage is, regardless of what your background is, we have, ever since the start of the pandemic, a moral obligation, potentially even a legal obligation and basically even a human rights obligation to make sure that our own citizens can return. We've denied that we haven't been able to manage quarantine properly, and that is something that we have to scrutinize. At a certain point, you have to say that is your duty, and sometimes take the risks to say, well, there are some risks that we take with every single international passenger that we take, but that is what quarantine is for. At the end of the day, we've had more time, more resources than pretty much any other country throughout this pandemic to be able to bring our citizens home. We failed to do that, and at a certain point, it is not for our own citizens who are stranded to pay the price for what has been a government failure. So for those listening, I think it's important to touch on some of the arguments for the ban. A former Indian High Commissioner to Australia, Navdeep Singh Suri, said the ban had to be seen in context. Now, Australia has always taken an absolutist batten-down-the-hatches policy, and the numbers have been low and they don't want to jeopardise the situation. Some doctors in India are horrified by how mismanaged the situation is in India, how the government has been negligent by holding mailers with 3 million people. Ultimately, we are putting the onus on another country who's not equipped to take care of their citizens, let alone our citizens. I also reject the premise that, you know, it, it is not a justification to say that Australia has been able to manage this pandemic very well, and therefore we have to completely go on on the extreme view to completely ban down the hatches and close the border. Those people, let me emphasize, are Australians as well. Hmm. Exactly. So if we're saying in our COVID counts of we've got zero cases and we've got zero deaths and we're managing this really well, include those in the statistics then if you must. And I say that as a figure of speech. I'm not saying that the New South Wales Department of Health has to now include those statistics. What I'm saying is that those people are also our citizens. So to say that we must protect our own, we are still failing that duty. I don't know if you've noticed the rhetoric online about this. The discussions around it are very they, them, and the language is not inclusive. The the thing is, when the government starts treating Indian Australians as second-class citizens or as less than uh, white counterparts, people start using that language too, whether it's on social media, whether it's in, in the media. Two things that I think the reason that's the case. One, fear, and two, ignorance about the situation. One, we fear that we have a really nice situation in terms of the way that we've managed COVID, and I understand that. We don't want to ruin it. We don't want anything to affect it because, my God, it has been a very difficult year or two. The second is 
is about the ignorance about why those people are overseas. Now, notwithstanding the fact that many people have different reasons for being overseas, whether it is to look after loved ones, whether it is for funerals, whether it's for whatever, they are still going there for those that have been able to with government permission, with government blessing. And funnily enough, the comments that I read, like you are on Facebook and Instagram and that sort of thing, a lot of people are like, oh, they've had long enough. I feel like if those same people actually understood how long people have been waiting and why they've been waiting for so long, I genuinely think that those people would actually come over to the perspective that we're talking about here. Because honestly, it is exasperating that from a layperson's perspective, when you think about, oh, there are citizens overseas, geez, it's been over a year, there's a trust in government. There's an absolute inherent trust in the Australian government to say that, yeah, of course we try and bring them home. They've just chosen not to come back. And I think that many people find it just so unfathomable that it has taken our own government so long that they don't believe that there are people who have been waiting that long. And you've experienced that firsthand. If anyone knows, you know what exactly. it's like. And I understand where that trust and faith comes from. I had it too. I thought that, look, we'll get it in order. We'll bring them back. And we waited and we waited and we waited And there are many more people who weren't as lucky as me who got the phone call to say, look, we've got a last-minute spot. Those people are still stuck, and they've been stuck for a really, really long time. Coming up after the break, we answer your questions around what you wanted to hear regarding the India flight bans. Stay tuned. So while we've been having this discussion, our lovely Simran Dhaliwal has posted on Instagram to ask you guys if you had any questions around the ban. Let's read those questions and try and answer them. Awesome. Okay. So the first question we had was, is this racism or is there more to the bigger picture that we don't understand? Yeah, look, and I think this was going back to what we were discussing before, is that racism takes many different forms. It doesn't require someone to have the intention to be like, as explicit as saying that I don't want Indians here and I'm closing the border. I don't think the government, for the most part, is is saying that. I, I'll, I'll put that out there. But it doesn't make the policy that they've enacted any less racist than what it is. Because the effect of it is to stop people, the vast majority of them, of Indian background from coming when we never considered, it never even crossed our minds when this was happening in the UK. It never crossed our minds when there were second and third waves happening in the US. But yet, not only did it cross our minds when it came to India, we enacted it, we stopped our own citizens from coming home, and we put criminal sanctions. So quickly as well. So quickly. There are definitely people publicly criticising this, and there has been a lot of backlash, not just from Indian Australians, but from the broader community. People have labelled the restrictions as immoral, as un-Australian. Whether you sit on the left or the right side of the fence, people are all coming out about it. Andrew Bolt has come out about it. I was just going to say. So for anyone at home listening, Andrew Bolt is a fairly well-known commentator. I think it's fair to say that he's fairly right-wing and known for his right-wing ideals and the fact that he's come out to condemn the ban is pretty telling. I think if there's any silver lining that anyone wants from the current situation is the sheer diverse group of people that support is coming from. 
you have people, obviously, of Indian background, but you have many people of non-Indian backgrounds. You have many people from the left. You have many people from the right. You have the former liberal opposition leader, John Hewson, coming out. You have Andrew Bolt coming out. You have so many different people that have said that, you know what, there is and there has to be a line on this. Indians make up a very important part of our multicultural fabric. And that is why there is that such a big backlash. That is why the government is scrambling so quickly. Yeah. Noting on the scrambling, Michael Slater, former cricketer, came out with a tweet condemning the government. He's stuck in India, and uh, now I think the Maldives. He came out kind of saying, you know, the government has blood on his hands. And in response, Scott Morrison, he said, look, we've threatened to jail or fine people, but the likelihood of that being enforced is super low. Now, what are your thoughts on that? I think there's, if that's the case, then don't put the law in there in the first place. One of the announcements that's been made is to say that actually from May 15, we're going to have around one or two flights every week trying to bring people back. And I'm hardened by that in terms of the backlash clearly is making some sort of difference in terms of the type of policy that we're enacting. But my question to that is, where were those flights on that regular basis to bring them back in the first place when the situation wasn't this dire, but they mm. were still waiting? But we clearly had the capability to do it. We have the announcements now. That's a brilliant step forward. But it disappoints me and hurts me so much that there are not only just Indian uh, Australians stuck in India, but all over the world that are still waiting their turn. And it took a national backlash for any kind of needle to move towards justice. Absolutely. I think ultimately it does come down to the fact that the government's response was so quick and so comfortable, like you said. And so, yeah, I do think there is an element of racism there. And you're right, people are scared of the word, but I think that's what it is. There are obviously other factors to it. And perhaps those policies might have been been something that we can sit comfortably with had they been enforced consistently. But given they haven't been, and given that this is an anomaly, I do think that there, there's an element of racism here. Yeah, okay, someone's running from across the room. Because <laughs> everyone loves my voice. I, I really hope you keep that bit in me like, yeah, everyone yeah, loves my voice. This is great. I'm not sure if you've answered this already. Um, but the next one is, don't you think the ban is important to be able to protect our domestic community? So I think, look, it's a very good question. I don't think anyone is advocating for immediately you bring 9,000 people on a couple of planes in the space of one or two nights, but you have a situation where our own citizens have a very strong possibility of having serious medical ramifications or potentially dying from the situation that we have there, where you compare it to our situation here where we have almost nil. And frankly, it should never have gotten to this stage anyway. Yeah. It's been over a year of these people to wait. But we also have the ability and proven ability to deal with outbreaks. We have the ability to lock down and we have a health system that is ready and willing to fight to make sure that our citizens are okay. And isn't that what hotel quarantine is for? It's it, The whole point of it is to protect and take the risks and decide when those risks should be taken. Absolutely. And you're going to have, look, we've just seen in New South Wales, we've seen it in Sydney, that we we are going to have, for the foreseeable future, there are going to be outbreaks from time to time. But we've shown that we can deal with that. Mm. What was also the responsibility of all those governments is that we also needed to put in the facilities to bring our own people home. ASMR voice coming back. <laughs> 
Okay, so the next question is, can you guys explain the legal side of things? Why does our system allow this to happen? I mean, why we're able to do that, and obviously I flag that I'm not a constitutional lawyer or expert or anything like that, but again, my understanding um, is that federal governments, just like they've been able to deal with uh, the pandemic here and close the borders to different countries, they have that ability because that is one of their prerogatives. You know, unfortunately, we've got a lot of tragic stories about international students who can't come. But people understand why that's the case because they're trying to protect, again, the priority being their own citizens. Where the controversy lies is that those restrictions are now being targeted at the very citizens that we're supposed to be protecting. That's that's where this recent case has come forward in the federal court. Yeah, so there is a 73-year-old man stuck in Bangalore. He's challenged this decision to bar Australians from returning. The two reasons he's kind of got backing him are, firstly, the federal government acted outside its powers, and secondly, there is an implied freedom for us to return home under the Constitution. I personally, my own personal belief is that I can't fathom any scenario, and I have not seen this happen in any other country in the world, that we deny citizens the ability to come to their rightful home. That's really troubling. Um, So the last question we got was actually someone I know saying, my grandma is stuck in India still. How did his mum get back and does he have any tips on what to do? Firstly, to that question, uh, my heart breaks for for families like that because the situation is far worse than it even was when my mum was overseas. In terms of tips and tricks, honestly, I'm very optimistic about the recent announcement that has happened in terms of repatriation flights that they're planning to announce after May 15. I really hope that they follow through with that. I can totally understand if you're cynical or sceptical about it because we waited and we waited as well. I think the best bet is to keep doing what you're doing, to keep trying to make sure you're registered on DFAT, to make sure that you're calling wherever you can in terms of the airlines to see what Air India is posting, even though, again, that's its own story and trying to get tickets and trying to get home. The way that we waited, we were on the registration website, we kept waiting, we kept calling uh, without any result. And then one day late at night at the office, I got a call saying that, look, there's one last minute spot on an Air India flight that's coming to Sydney is your mum going to be able to get to Delhi in time? We dropped everything and we went. So my advice to your grandmother as well is to have the systems in place to be able to pack quickly, to have everything ready to go for that moment's notice when hopefully that call comes. And until then, stay as safe as possible. And on your part, we've got to band together and do as much as we can to advocate for the return of our citizens who have every right to come home and should not have their lives being risked in the situation that is going on right now. All the best and I'm really sorry. Yeah, absolutely. It's even been condemned by the UN in the sense that Article 12 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights states that no one shall be deprived of the right to return and enter his own country. It's obviously a an international problem. We can talk about the legal side of it. We can talk about the people stranded. We can talk about the situation. But I guess what we really should also be doing is humanizing the situation that's happening. I'm pulling up an article in the ABC that I saw yesterday that was written by Toby Mann, and he refers to a Melbourne mum, Afsan Begum, and she's been stuck in India with her daughter and the government has now criminalized their ability to return home. She says she doesn't feel like an Australian at all. And she says that being unable to come back is very bad. Not being able to go back to your own home, it doesn't feel like it's your own home. 
and she's been crying every day. How does this make you feel as an Indian Australian? How would you feel knowing that this could have been you, this could have been me, this could have been your family, this could have been my family? It's it's a powerful statement and honestly that is what I feel the vast majority of people of Indian heritage are feeling right now because that's the message that it sends to say that, sorry, when push comes to shove, this can be your home under certain conditions and parameters. It's sort of, but not really. That's a really, really difficult thing to hear, particularly when you come from an ethnic origin where you are used to hearing things from time to time, the rhetoric about, you know, when we were talking about othering. Mm. That's always going to make you feel like an outsider. And given that it's something that's on a government and national level, it's going to make you feel like on the national stage you've been told that you are different. They just don't feel like they're the same level of Australian as any of their peers, even though they have every right to be just as equal and are just as Australian. We've grown up, especially in primary school, being told that we live in a lucky country, that we're Australian. What does it mean to be Australian? I remember all the public speaking speeches I would make. Being born here, being brought up here, being a melting pot of cultures, being able to share all our experiences. But you're right, when it comes down to it, when we're deprioritized, it feels like all of that was just empty words. At our darkest times in Australia, we had the multicultural fabric of this country stand up. You think about the bushfires, you think about the Sikh, the Muslim, the Indian, the European, the, all communities stood up together to help out the towns that were burning. When we were in some of our darkest hours, we're not returning the same to our brothers and sisters I think what's particularly heartbreaking about the situation for Australian families, and I can sort of relate to what they were going through for when mum was away, is the situation that they're actually watching. That at the moment, you have mass cremations taking place across major cities and even rural areas. You've got people that aren't being able to even get to a hospital in time. You've got bodies piling up outside hospitals. And when you're looking at all of those scenes, I just ask wherever people are on our argument, whether they agree with me or they disagree, that they at least empathise with what those families are going through right now. Because every day they're watching the news and seeing what the scenes are actually like and thinking that the moment any of their family members get COVID and should any of them require hospitalisation, they are in a serious, seriously critical situation. And for those people, I can't imagine what they're going through. But we have to empathise and think about them when we're discussing all these issues because it would be nothing short of a nightmare. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you, Kushal, for coming and talking to us about your perspective on the flight ban and the article that you've written. I have learnt a lot talking to you. For those of you at home, if you do have the means to donate, then please go check out South Asian Today on Instagram. Philbrit has a list of verified donation campaigns in her bio. They are a great guide to knowing where your money is going and really making a difference there. I do think that if more Australians, not just Indians, were as passionate about this as you were, we might be able to get somewhere with reversing the law. That's super kind of you and congratulations on the wonderful podcast. You're doing an awesome job. Thank you. Congratulations on the article. Thank you. You can follow Kushal. Do you want me to shout your Instagram? Ah, you, you can if you... Okay, great. And that's K-H-U-S-H-A-A-L underscore V-Y-A-S. Wow. Yeah. Nailed it. Jeez. Yeah. It's benefits of being Indian. <laughs> You can follow us at Uncultured Pod on Instagram, and I guess we'll see you next week. Bye.